You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, the next scene in Luke's gospel occurs in the house of a Pharisee. And some of the things that Jesus will say in this house are similar to the things that he said in Matthew's gospel in the temple area. But here it happens between him and a Pharisee and a lawyer inside of a home. And we assume with other people looking on and listening in. It says in verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished, verse 38, to see that he did not first wash before dinner. So Jesus is invited by this Pharisee into his home to eat. And of course, knowing Jesus as we do, it's not surprising to us at all that he says yes to this man's invitation. He generally says yes when invited in. But the Pharisee is astonished at something. And what what would it be that would shock a Pharisee? Well, here he is shocked because Jesus did not first wash before dinner. Now, this isn't a note about Jesus's hygienic practices or lack thereof. No, in that era, they had a very ceremonial and technical washing that if you're religious, you would engage in. They had, of course, observed in the Old Testament that in order to serve inside of the temple or tabernacle, you must be clean. And so they had extended that to their mealtimes. And if you were religious, the desire was to give yourself or to go through this ceremonial cleansing so that you could be clean before the meal. You would take one and a half eggshells worth of water and pour it from hands to wrist, rub your palms together, then pour it again from wrist to hands, all with holy water that had been kept in special stone vessels. Some people even did this in between courses. So, of course, how do you get that line of thinking or interpretation? Well, you take scripture and you twist it and overinterpret it and add a legalistic tone to it. And eventually you come up with interpretations of God's word that are like this. Now, the beautiful thing for Christians is that we have been liberated from legalism. We have been liberated from the law by Jesus. Paul said in Galatians 2 verse 19, he said, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, Paul says, listen, I'm dead to the law. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But Paul went on to say in Galatians 5, verse 1, he exhorted believers to stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul understood that the human condition is such that even believers will be tempted to go back to a yoke of legalism, a a yoke of slavery, rules and requirements and regulations that they would believe would then approve them in God's sight. Paul also understood another part of human nature, 
when later in Galatians 5, in verse 13, he said, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And I think both of those verses, verse 1 and verse 13 of Galatians 5, help us understand the two responses that are very common after becoming a believer. Some people go into a yoke of slavery and legalism. Some people cast off all restraint and use their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, and we might call that license. But Galatians 5 verse 18, Paul says, but you are to be led by the Spirit. If you're led by the Spirit or walking by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So there's a greater life, and the greater life is to be a person who is not legalistic and not to be a person who is full of license, but a person who is led by the Holy Spirit of God. So as we go through the response of Jesus to this shocked Pharisee, let us ask ourselves, where did legalism get them? Let us ask ourselves, what would license do with this kind of concept? But let us finally ask ourselves, and what would the person led by the Spirit of God do in this particular area or line of thought? The Lord said to him in verse 39, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus here gets right on the Pharisee, and he announces something to him. He says, listen, here's what you need to know. You Pharisees are cleaning the outside of the cup and of the dish. You know, inside is dirty. Inside is full of greed and of wickedness. But you're spending all the time on the external, that which is outward, trying to clean the dish in that kind of way. You appear godly, but really inwardly, you're denying the power of God because there's no real change inside of you. You're full of greed and you're full of wickedness. And so Jesus here highlights something that I think is very common to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, dealing completely with that which is external. They wanted to look pious, but inside they had greed and wickedness. But there are some words that Jesus says here. He says, but inside, and again, those things that are within in verse 41. I think what Jesus is announcing is that the beautiful thing about the person who has been set free by the gospel is that the Lord is able to address the inner person, the, the person within. Phariseeism or hypocrisy or legalism deals with that which is external. People who experience license, well, they deal with nothing. They think that there is nothing that is unclean. But the liberated person says, no, I know that there is uncleanness. It comes in the form of things like Jesus mentioned, greed and, and wickedness. But the beautiful hope of the gospel is that Jesus, by his spirit, is able to transform me from the inside out. Uh, many believers, I think, don't understand this. 
Hebrews chapter 8 tells us that there is a covenant. The Bible had promised a new covenant for God's people someday. Jesus took the cup on the night that he was betrayed and he said, this is the cup of my new covenant, my blood shed for you. In Hebrews 8, we learn about that covenant. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. What God announces there is he says, listen, the day is done where I write my laws upon tablets of stone. Now I'm going to write my laws upon their minds and upon their hearts. Those will be the tablets. In other words, I will change the very inner construct of who they are. I will change their will and their desires so that they will want to follow after me. This is being led by the Spirit of God. This is being sanctified and, and glorified and changed by the Spirit of God. This is what the liberated life is all about. Lord, change me from the inside out. Create in me a clean heart, O God, the psalmist prayed, and renew a right spirit within me. And this is possible by the blood of Jesus. Now, Jesus went on in verse 42, and he said, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, Jesus here begins his set of woes that he'll pronounce. Three for the Pharisees and then three again for the scribes. The first woe, he says, is, Listen, you're tithing from your herb gardens, not just your major crops, but you've extended it even to your small little backyard herb gardens, your mint, your rue, every herb. You're tithing. You're giving a tenth to me. And you're thinking that this is the thing that is pleasing me. Well, all the while, you've neglected justice, you know, the way to treat man, and you're neglecting a love of God. You're not treating man well. You're not loving God well. And you think that you can neglect those things while tithing your herb garden. Listen, these you ought to have done, he said, without neglecting the others. You see, the legalist gets caught up in the smallest little details, thinking that, you know, the nine for me, one for God approach is going to somehow fulfill righteousness and satisfy the heart of God. The person of license, of course, they aren't concerned with any restraint, but the person who's been liberated says, well, God, thank you. Thank you for things like the tithe, where I'm able to learn how to trust you practically, put my money where my mouth is and trust you practically, where I can financially invest in the invisible kingdom of God where I can support the work of the ministry here on earth and where I can receive your power and experience your provision in my life and where I can be set free from things like greed and covetousness as I let go of the things that so often bind my heart. Thank you for that, Lord. But at the same time, God, I understand that this isn't your most major priority. That is the minor, but the major is justice to man and a love for God. This is what I long for within my life. And the liberated person following the Spirit, they seek to live a life that focuses on these things, loving God and loving man. And just the simplicity, 
of being led by the Spirit and being liberated by God in this kind of way is absolutely beautiful. Now in verse 43, Jesus went on to say, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Now, in the synagogues, there would be seats that were sort of on the stage, if you will, facing the congregation. And the Pharisees loved to sit in those seats, you know, places, seats of honor. They loved receiving honor from people in the marketplaces. Notice that it really isn't a statement against even the seats or the greetings. It's the love of the seat and the love of the greetings. That tells us that even if a Pharisee didn't get to sit in those seats or didn't receive that kind of honor or greeting publicly, if he loved them, if he wanted them, then he would be guilty of this. And so I think this is great application to anyone who has that lust within their hearts for the praise and the adoration of man. And that's what a pharisaical legalism will get you. Look at me. Notice me. Notice my sacrifice. Notice the consecration. Notice the decision that I've made to, you know, live a certain kind of life to radically follow after the Lord. Now, there's nothing wrong with radically following after the Lord, but for the Pharisees, the motivation was all wrong. They wanted the praise of man. The person of license, well, they don't care about the praise of man, at least not righteous men. What they care for is the praise of their own hearts. Whatever pleases me, that's what I want to do. But the liberated life, the life that is following after the Spirit of God, the liberated life wants more than anything for the praise of God to be upon their lives. Lord, what do you say about my life? Are you pleased with the decisions that I'm making? Are you pleased with the fruit of my life? And, and even if I hear the mouth of praise coming in my direction from other humans, the question is, but what does God think? And even if I hear the mouth of criticism rise up, against me. The question of my heart is, but Lord, what is it that you say? Paul the Apostle wouldn't even be his own judge. He says, God is my judge. Proverbs 27 verse 21 in the New Living Translation says, fire tests the purity of silver and gold, but a person is tested by being praised. You know, when you're praised, the way you respond says a lot about you. If you're able to take it in stride and say, that's great, but at the end of the day, I realize that criticism could come just as easily. What I really long for is the praise of God over my life. If that's your response, well, then it says a lot about you. You are a liberated kind of person by the gospel to be able to respond in that kind of way. His third woe to the Pharisees went like this in verse 44. He said, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, in the book of Numbers, God had told the people of Israel that if they came into contact with a grave and accidentally touched a corpse or death, then they would be ceremonially unclean for seven days. Now, what they would do then is they would mark the graves, oftentimes with whitewash or limestone, 
so that people would know, well, there's a grave there. Don't touch it so that you have to be unclean ceremonially for seven days. It was a way for God to teach the people of Israel that there is such a thing as right and wrong and clean and unclean. Now, in that era, that's the way that it worked. The thing that was unclean, the grave, would transfer the uncleanness to things that were clean that touched it. You know, when Jesus came along, however, he blew up that whole system. Lepers would come to him, and in the Old Testament era, if a leper touched you, you would be unclean. But when lepers touched Jesus, Jesus remained clean, and they were made clean. They were healed. Jesus was clean. He transferred cleanness, is what I'm trying to say. And, of course, you and I are not going to transfer cleanness in the same way that Jesus does. We cannot impute righteousness to anyone. But if a Pharisee or a legalist unknowingly or unwittingly transfers uncleanness, for that is what they do. And if a person of license, who I think also transfers a great amount of uncleanness, the liberated life transfers cleanness. That's what we want. We want to bring cleanness into people's lives. We want to help them and encourage them and lift them up. Hebrews 10 verse 24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We're trying to make a game plan, he says. You, you think about, how can I stir up other people to love and good works? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What I long for more than anything there is, is, is that I want to be a person who is encouraging. I want to strategize how to stir people up to love and good works. I want to draw out the best from within them. And how many times I've seen people who have made decisions in their lives that had there just been someone there in that moment who would have encouraged them. They might not have gone into the paths of sin that they went into. Another way that we're able to transfer cleanness is through confession. James 5 verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You know, when someone confesses sin to you, that's a holy moment in life. God is winning the victory. The devil is losing. Just continue to ask them questions that that confession might come out in their lives. And then pray for them. Just pray for them. You don't need to teach them at that moment. You need to pray for them. There's a powerful thing. There is cleanness that is being transferred in that moment. I think that's what the liberated life does. It doesn't transfer a bunch of uncleanness. It helps produce cleanness in the lives of those around them. Now, one of the lawyers, verse 45, answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. You know, he probably was sitting there and thinking, well, you know, these Pharisees, they're behaving this way because they're following a set of teachings. And us lawyers or scribes, we're the ones who created those teachings. So he's actually insulting us. And Jesus did not back down for a moment when he began to pronounce woes upon the lawyers. He says, in verse 46, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Now, the scribes, you know, in theory, had explained the word of God to people. But in all 
practicality, they had burdened the people beyond measure. I mean, just the laws surrounding the Sabbath day were so incredibly extreme. I've even heard of one that talked about the Old Testament command for the military, where God had required that their bathrooms be a certain distance from the camp. It was a for sanitary reasons, that they would not get sick as they're out in battle, but that some had begun to interpret. Some scribes had said, well, you know, the people of Israel in general are like the army of God, so our, all of our bathrooms at all times should be that distance away from our homes where we dwell. Well, they also had said that on the Sabbath, you weren't allowed to travel, and they'd come up with a length that you were allowed to travel. And so you were really out of luck if your bathroom happened to be further than the Sabbath distance of travel. And, you know, you would just kind of look at that and say, God is ridiculous. You would not have a love for God or a respect for God. You would instead see him as a bit of a tyrant. But that wasn't the reality. God was just giving you a day of rest. But they had so overinterpreted it that it had become a burden to the people. And so the scribes, they bring burdens. But the liberated life seeks to lighten the load for others. Jesus offers his yoke. He offers his burden, which is easy and light. He explained to us to love God, to love our neighbor. But the enemy, of course, loves to make the word of God harder, more difficult, more painful. That's what the legalist does. But the person walking in the Spirit says, listen, I, I want to have righteousness in my life. And God is doing a deep work within my heart. He's continuing to change me and to transform me. Just get on this road, get on this journey, and continue to watch the Lord change you from glory to glory. It's a, it's a burden-lightening message. Now, in verse 47, Jesus gave another woe to these scribes. He said, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, and many people wonder where this is from or who is the wisdom of God. Personally, I think that this is Jesus speaking of himself. The wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. Jesus said, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Really what you have here is classic overcompensation, overdoing it as a means of covering their guilt. When the prophets originally came, they were rejected for the most part by the people of Israel, sometimes killed by the people of Israel. Years later, of course, their prophecies would come to pass and the people would recognize those were legitimate prophets of God that our forefathers killed. In response, they would go and decorate and build up their tombs. Jesus said of the scribes, he said, you go out and you build up their tombs. This was them overdoing it. In other words, Jesus says, you would have done the same thing. You would have killed the prophets in the same manner had you been alive at that time. You are guilty 
of the blood of all of the prophets. And it's interesting because he says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Now, of course, in the language Jesus was speaking, Abel to Zechariah in English, it works out nicely from A to Z. It wouldn't have been that way in Jesus's language. But for us, from Abel to the blood of Zechariah, it is the first death there in Genesis chapter 4, where Abel offered a sacrifice of faith to God. His brother Cain was jealous because his sacrifice had been rejected and Abel's had been received. God spoke with Cain about that temptation to harm his brother, but Cain resisted. And sin was at the door, and Cain went in and killed his brother out of spiritual jealousy, really, in one sense. Then Zechariah, who at the end of Second Chronicles, which was the way they organized the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, would be the last book of the Hebrew Bible. So the last death there, so the first death, Abel, the last death, Zechariah, he went in and he proclaimed that their worship of false gods in the temple was a sin. And King Jehoash, who had been righteous at one point, but when his priest had died, who was actually Zechariah's father, when that priest died, he lashed out in unrighteousness and actually took the life of Zechariah right there between the altar and the sanctuary. And Jesus says, listen, you're guilty of all of that blood and all the prophets in between. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. You see, I think that what's happening here is that the legalist, oh, they say they like the Bible. They say they like the prophets. They would decorate the tombs of the prophets if they could. The person of license, of course, says, oh, the prophets, they're not for me. They have nothing to say to me. But you know what the liberated life says? The liberated life says, listen, I'm not here to simply celebrate the prophets. I'm here to study them. I believe that they have something to say to me. You see, the scribes, those decorating the tombs, what they were trying to say through their decoration was, we agree, we agree, we agree, we agree with these prophets. We're on the same team as these prophets. But a person who's been liberated by the Lord says, God, let your word into my life. Correct me, shape me, mold me. I, I need you to speak to me. Because yes, that's the team that I want to be on, but I need your truth. I need you to transform me. I am not who I need to be. We want the word of God to cut and shape and perform its surgery in our lives. And so Jesus said, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. And then finally, verse 52, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. They had expounded and expounded and expounded, but had led the people into darkness. They had removed the key of knowledge. I think had they expounded well, the people would have been ready for Jesus, ready for the Christ in his first coming. The beautiful thing about the liberated life is that it has the key of knowledge. Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 27, that God gave to the church the knowledge of the riches of the glory of this mystery. The key of knowledge is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We preach Christ. We teach about Jesus. We show the power of him 
living and abiding inside of a human being that they might be changed and that they might be transformed. And the liberated life brings this knowledge of Christ into the lives of others. Now, as he went away from there, verse 53, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They were not open to Jesus's message. They were closed to it. Their hearts were poisoned and they could not hear the truth and the words that he spoke. But oh, that we might live a life that has been set free by the gospel that is following after the Holy Spirit, that we might rise above legalism into something more beautiful, wonderful, pure, and attractive than anything that legalism or license could ever produce. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.